Let's pray and then we'll get started here this morning. Father, thank you for your amazing grace, for your love for us. And uh, as we talk about this subject of love, such a vast, broad, incredible subject, I pray that we could uh, kind of scope it down so that it, it just makes sense and our lives are affected by it. So change us and use us for your glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in 1992, a very savvy political strategist named James Carville crafted a uh, phrase that galvanized Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. Some of you would remember that. It's the economy, stupid. In other words, Carville was trying to say to him, keep the main thing the main thing. Major on the majors, don't major on the minors. That was the point. And of course, Bill Clinton won that election in 1992. If we were to reinterpret this statement from a Christian standpoint, we'd drop the word stupid out of it. But we would say this, it's all about love, brothers. It's all about love, sisters. I think you know Jesus is the central person in the scriptures from beginning to end, but love is the greatest theme in the Bible. Why do I say that? Because the Bible is not a book about morality. It's not a book about heroic figures. It's not a book about laws and commandments. The Bible is a love story of rescue and redemption and reconciliation. Broken and lost people brought back to God based upon his amazing love for us. Now, this hardly needs defending, but I want to just give you three examples. I mean, there's a, the word love is in the Bible 500 times. And all these examples uh, refer to agape love, this kind of sacrificial, the, the deepest kind of love possible, all right? Let's stand together and just, let me just look at, let's just look at three passages of scripture uh, on the screens. Let's look at 1 John uh, first, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Can we do that one? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John 13 a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The great mark of Christianity is not your knowledge or your skills. It's, it's, it's your love for people. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Does that seem important to you? You may be seated. If you didn't think it was important, you remain standing <laughs> the rest of the time. Now, we're going to look at love from four vantage points, kind of from the past, creation, the incarnation, 
the present work of the Holy Spirit, and then in eternity and the ages to come. Each one of these things has, I think, very relevant application to our lives. First of all, love in creation. Everything you've ever valued and cherished about your life on earth that you have right now, that you, you consider uh, just fantastic about your life is, is a result of God's love for you. Uh, when our son was in Germany in the army, I took Debbie to Switzerland to the Lauterbrunnen Valley. I think we may have an image of that there. And when I went there, uh, I, I said, God, if this, if this is what heaven is like, it's good enough for me. I mean, there's 72 waterfalls. And this the beautiful grass and, you know, cows with bells and... Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't think a guy like me would like cows with bells, but I, somehow I, I did. And, and then the mountain peaks. This is a summer view. You know, I said, God, if heaven was, I, I, I couldn't improve on it. It gives me chills as I think about it right now, to be able to see that. All the warmth of your family life, whatever you're going to experience this week, you're sitting around on Christmas morning with hot cocoa or coffee and your kids or grandkids are around there and you feel like life is... Is good. All, all of this is a result of God's amazing love. And we, we just overlook this. Uh, John Piper asked an interesting question. He says, does God like the world that he made? And he takes us back to Genesis 1 and says, every day where God made something, it said, uh, God said it was good. It was good. And then finally you get to Genesis 131, after man and woman are made. And this is what the text says in Genesis 131, and God made the world, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In other words, the creation of man led to this uh, intense sense that I am pleased with what I have made, and I've given this to you for your enjoyment, and so this would be reflected back to me in my glory, right? That's the whole point. Uh, Piper, in uh, ruminating on his sabbatical in the North uh, Georgia uh, sort of wilderness. He went to a cabin many years ago, and he, he said this about that experience. He says, real life is physical. It has to do with touch and smell and sight and sound and taste. It has to do with trees and stumps and fish and frogs and ants and birds and leaves and water and heat and slaw, uh, I guess he meant coleslaw, and iced tea and salty sweat and worms and granddaddy long legs and 10,000 other creatures and sensations that come to us because God made a physical world. And he says, I I'm almost guilty that I enjoy this so much. But then he said, this is what God did for us. This is what he gave to us. And if, if, you, if you love the creation that you're in, it's because of his amazingly deep and abiding love. And you say, you know, yeah, uh, Christians are really blessed. And C.K. Chesterton said, let's, let's be careful that we don't weary of wonders. We weary of wonders. We just get tired. It just, uh, just makes, uh, you know, it's mundane. It's not. It's, it's an incredible world. And you say, God has really blessed Christians, hasn't he? Well, let me, let me have, let me just say this to you. God's kindness and benevolence reaches into people who hate him and who despise him and who deny him. His benevolence is wonderful toward them as well. See, you know those images that come up on your computer? 
you know, of all these beautiful sights. I don't know if you have that. If you don't have a computer like that, what's wrong with you? You know, you kind of, I get all these pictures of beautiful places. I, that just doesn't come up on Christian computers. Everybody gets those. Because everybody goes, wow. Let me read to you uh, the, the proof of what I'm trying to say from Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you're, you may be uh, the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes, listen to this now, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God's grace and mercy applies to people who don't think anything of him. And that's why they often have uh, these kind of wonderful lives, right? At least for a while. Now, what creation is meant to do is rise uh, our eyes up and say, oh God, you made this. You're amazing. You're wonderful. You're to be glorified. That's, that's what creation is meant to do, unfortunately, because of the fall, because of the way we are now wired as rebellious people, the human race doesn't do that. And Romans 1 teaches us this. Look at Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, when people look at the world, they're supposed to go, God, this is you. What does this mean to know you? But unfortunately, because of our fall, all of us by nature turn what we see into something idolatrous. We diminish God and turn our lives into this idolatry. In, in other words, the splendor of creation we make about ourselves. We turn to this idolatry. We substitute the true God for phony imitations. And if you stand before the Grand Canyon, I've never been there, I can imagine, or marvel at the Lauterbrunnen Valley, if you're standing there and your next thought is this, your next thought is, man, I am really significant. <laughs> you're pathological. <laughs> Something wrong with you. Uh, but here's, here's the point. Everybody does this every day. They look at creation and still say, you know what? I'm in the center. Life is about me. I'm in charge. I make up the rules. That's, that's what people do by nature. They look at creation and say, it's still about me. Do you do that? This kind of idolatry will destroy you. It's why you can't latch on to anything or anyone as a source of security and identity and significance because if your gaze turns from here to here, you're doomed. Now, we're not talking about enjoying this. We're talking about idolizing it, trusting it, depending upon it, 
relying on it, loving it more than anything, it'll kill you. So the question I have for you is who or what has first place in your heart? Right now, as you think about your life, what's the most important thing to you? Another way to put it is who or what, if taken away from you, would would make your life miserable and, and almost not even worth living. You have to think about these things because this is, this is a battle that we're all facing every day. Uh, when we were with our five grandchildren in Washington before Thanksgiving, our oldest daughter, Audrey, was in a, in a, a play and she had a, a, a role in it, a significant role in it, but one of the lead uh, actresses in this play, Little Women, uh, found out that the understudies were going to get one night, as they often do, right? Three nights, the understudies were going to get one night. This girl went home and told her mother. Her mother came up to the school and reamed out the, the, uh, the teacher and yelled and screamed and said, you can't do this. This is, this is not right. This is, this is wrong. Uh, made a scene and, 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 and her daughter quit the play and they never came back. You say, well, that, that, that mother has anger. That mother has pride. Oh, yeah. But you know, you, know, you know the heart of that is idolatry. Thinking this is who she is. And this is what she must do, right? Do you have tendencies to do that? When things don't go your way, when your idols are threatened, you will erupt. What causes you to erupt? See, Creation is meant to reveal the glory of God and for us to surrender to him, and instead we've turned it into idols. Now the second phase of this is the incarnation. This is the heart of the Christmas story. I think John 3.16 was read. Let's, let's remind ourselves of, of this great message. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whosoever believe in it, believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where's the love of God manifested here now, right? 1 John 4. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or propitiation means to be a satisfaction. Satisfying the righteous judgment of God. The, the love of God is best displayed in the incarnation and in the cross. That's the one sure place you'll find his love. Now, what's interesting, if you, if you had a plan to ensure the world uh, would, um, you know, be impacted by your ministry, would, would, you, would you be born... Uh, in a stable with farm animals and born to a poor young couple from a little town called Nazareth that's so nondescript and unimportant it wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament? Would that be your strategy for worldwide conquest? Do you see the, do you see the amazement of, of, the, of the incarnation of, of, of Christmas? Do you see the amazement of that? Who would ever think of this? Who would ever make this stuff up? 
My loving pastoral counsel to you is this. Don't, don't look to your circumstances in life if you want ironclad proof that God loves you. Don't look to your circumstances and say, this is where I will measure the love of God for me. You know why? Because some of you have very difficult circumstances. And if you don't now, you might in the future, or the people next to you will. You cannot look to those and say, there, I says, oh God, oh God loves me so much, and look, he's just poured all these things out in my life. And how how t- tragic and fickle it would be if half of you were here said, oh, God loves me because I just, I got a good report, and you know, I, I got a great job, and I have really wonderful kids, and I have good outcomes, and oh, God loves me. And the other half of you, or 60 or 70 percent, were saying, you know, I, I'm struggling in my health and in my, with my children and my job and in my marriage and, and with, with my money, and I don't think God loves me. What a bunch of schizophrenic people we would be in here. If you came to these opposite conclusions, the one thing that binds us together for all of us in this community is to say, you know what, we are convinced that the cross is his greatest act of love. Uh, The greatest proof of his love. Because his, his life and his death gives you what you need instead of what you want. I want a lot of things that God's going to say to me, no, and just, just like your children, your children are going to do the same thing. They're going to want a lot of things. You're going to say, no, you don't need that. It's not good for you. Here's the bottom line. God's agenda for you is really different than what you would want for yourself. You understand that as a Christian? Can you, can you sit here right now and say, his agenda for me is different than what I would choose for myself? Now, it may not be radically different, but it is different. Uh, I have a, this, this thing that came out of this uh, tornado last week, this one image really struck me. I think we have a picture of it here, uh, up here. Um, that, you know, that's not a beer hall. See the hymn books in the pews? People sing glory to God there. Now, with a savior like that, why do you need enemies? Right? Geez, Jesus, look how you loved us. You just destroyed our church. Does that look like love to you? This happened to one of our churches in Panama City in one of the hurricanes. They, they were out of their building for who knows how long. First press in Panama City. Totally destroyed. Gee, Jesus, I thought you loved your church. Oh, I do love it. But I have purposes for things like this. Let me give you a a really significant biblical reference that shows this to me. Uh, It's in John chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, look at this. This is really important. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay? He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He got his coat and he ran immediately to Bethany. Does it say that? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. See, Martha and Mary's agenda was 
you come right now. He stayed where he was two days longer to guarantee that Lazarus would be as good as dead. That doesn't look like love, does it? Why did he do that? Well, if you look at the verse above it, he tells his disciples this. This happened so that God will be glorified. That's the point. God will be glorified. So, are you now in a place where Jesus is delayed two days for you? What are you going through? You say, come, you gotta come, you gotta help me right now, right now, right now, right now. And he's going, well, I'm staying where I am for two days. Or maybe 10 days, or maybe, maybe a month. Because his agenda is his glory through you, not life as you want it. And this is a really hard thing to accept. I mean, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, you know, tells us that God disciplines us as his children for our good. There's no son that he, he loves that he doesn't discipline. And discipline comes in different forms because his, his agenda is the development of your soul. As a professor oh, decades ago at Wheaton College, I think his name is Dr. Kirby, he, he, he made some life resolutions and he said this, I shall not be fool enough to suppose that trouble and pain are wholly evil parentheses in my existence. In other words, like timeouts. You know, these are just timeouts. These are unfortunate timeouts, parentheses. Rather, just as likely these are ladders to be climbed toward moral and spiritual manhood or personhood or womanhood, right? These are ladders to be climbed to get me to be the kind of person God has made me to be. That's the incarnation. Now, let's look at the work of the Holy Spirit in today's world. Uh, just a couple of verses. Galatians 5.22, this long list of virtues. But the fruit of the Spirit, what, what does he say first? He puts it first. Now, when you go to Colossians 12, uh, Colossians, uh, what is it, 3, he kind of changes this around. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You can't do that unless you're around other people. You can't be any of these things for yourself. Bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Now look what he says. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, love is the wrapping that just ties everything together. You, you can't ignore the fact that love is the chief virtue of a believer. And I will say to this to you, if, if your first response to the brokenness around you in the world, in people and in their attitudes and in their, you know, their viewpoints and in their lifestyles, if, if your first response is judgment and disgust and condescension and revulsion and condemnation and criticism and gossip and I just have to say, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I would just say that the, the trickle-down effect of the Holy Spirit's work in your life has yet to really take hold in you. If the first thing you think about 
is how stupid and bad and wrong and evil and terrible uh, all these people in the world are. That the love of God isn't penetrated into your, into your soul. Romans 5.5 5 is another good example after Paul uses a lot of language about how all these troubles you know, build our hope and our faith. He says, hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is what he does. This is his work. Giving you this kind of, this kind of uh, compassion. When Jesus saw the masses in Mark 6, 34, it says he was moved with compassion. These were all sorts of people. They were sheep without a shepherd. They were ignorant and, and, and rebellious. And he says, I moved with compassion. Because that's Jesus' heart. And that's the work of the Spirit in your life. Now, the kind of love the Spirit's producing is this. As I've loved you, you're to love one another. And, and his love, of course, as I have loved you, is this incredibly amazing self-sacrifice, right? This isn't simply hum human affection. It's not just delight, unconditional acceptance, and warmth, and feelings of goodwill. This is a different kind of love. This is, this is a kind of love that's beyond human capacity. It's the kind of love that says this, I am willing to give up my rights and my privileges and my comforts. I, this, it's about self-denial and the acceptance of painful sacrifice for the welfare of other people. Now, you think about that when it comes to your marriage and your relationships with people in general. Other people's needs become more important than your own comfort. It involves giving yourselves up, and I, I think it's the only way you can explain uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony of the Garden, because Jesus was giving everything up him, the perfect son of God, giving everything up. Now, you think pastors are sacrificial people, and people say, well, I've been a good pastor for all these years. I, I want to tell you, there's hardly ever a time where I minister to someone where I'm not asking this question, what's this going to cost me? What's this going to cost me in terms of time, energy, effort, disruption? Right? When you think about yourself like this too much, love still hasn't gripped you to the degree that it needs to. I can fake it pretty good. When you're thinking about you, my wife asked me to do something, what's this going to cost me? And I don't mean money-wise, I just mean time, energy, you know, maybe money too, you know, that, that, that's, that's also true, but what's it going to cost me? When you love someone, you don't care about that. You just do what they need. See, that, th this is biblical love, and, and you can see how far we are from it. Now, uh, Jason Burnick, a dear friend of mine, we traveled to Israel together. I, I heard him uh, give this little illustration at a uh, FCA board meeting the other day, and I wanted him to videotape this for me because uh, he says it could say it way better than I could. I want you to watch this video uh, where he told a story uh, about sacrificial love. Let's watch this. Thank you, Pastor Bob, for asking me to share this story that's so important to me. 
Uh, Pastor Bob and I, we've been teaching across Israel uh, since 2000, I believe 18, it's been a great joy of mine. And one of the places that I've made an impact to make sure that we go to every trip is to the Holocaust Museum, to Yad Vashem. There's one man in particular that's memorialized at Yad Vashem, and his name is Yanis Krachek. Yanis had a great mission, a ministry to help the youth. Yanis was uh, assimilated into a Jewish family at age six. He lost his parents and was adopted by a Jewish family. In 1898, he attended university with the hopes and the wishes of becoming a physician and feeling a call to young lives, to children. And it was then that he became, it was there that he, be, he began studying to be a pediatrician. In 1901, he became a Christian, even though he was not Jewish before, he was not a Christian, grew up, then grew up in a Jewish home, but became a follower of Christ in 1901. And his love for kids and his passion and call for children just began to grow and grow and grow. And by 1912, he had opened up an orphanage. In 1920, he began writing books on teaching parents on how to parent children and helping students get off the street and children books and novels and so forth. By 1920, uh, Warsaw, the, the government in Poland, had, had given him a medal of honor for his work that he had done with children. When Poland was occupied in 1939, immediately the, the Polish government came to, to Janusz and said, Janusz, uh, we can bring you to a safe place. And Janusz said, no, the orphanage, the mission will continue. In 1940, uh, the, the Nazis were forcing this mission to close and forced all these kids into the ghetto. But before the mission continued in the ghetto, the government came to Janus and said, Janus, you don't have to go to the ghetto. We'll, we'll find a safe place for you. And Janus said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the ghetto. The orphanage was burned down, but the mission in the school continued even inside the ghetto. And 1942 took place, and all these children were going to be forced to get on a train to Treblinka. Before they got on the train, the government came to Janus and said, Janus, we'll find a safe place, our, our Arminian place for you. You're not Jewish, even though you've been helping Jewish children. The Nazis want you, but we'll get you safety. And Janus said, so he refused. He said, no, I'm going to go with my children. As a matter of fact, as the story goes, he said, Ahav kol tov miyod. Ahav kol tov miyod means love with all my strength. That's why he's in this moment. He's like, no, I'm staying with the kids. I'm going to love with all my strength. I'm going to love with all I've got. He dressed these kids up in their Sabbath best. He wore a Sabbath best, and they got on this train, which was probably about a 26, 27-hour train ride. He held the kids close to him. They sang songs. They rehearsed scriptures until finally they got to Treblinka, and it's in Treblinka that he was the first and led these kids with love even to the gas chamber. They called by God that he had on his life, and nothing, no army, no Nazi Germany was going to stop him from loving these children and loving the mission that God gave him. Janusz Krachek is a hero of mine. And when we go to Yad Vashem, I love going to his memorial and, uh, and just paying homage. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Pastor. Say, well, that's, that's, uh, that's way over the top.
Yeah, that's what love looks like. And so what I'm asking you to do is say, God, I don't love very well. Go home and say, I just don't love, I don't love my wife, I don't love my kids, I don't love my friends. With this sacrificial love that's possible through Jesus. A little closer to home, there was a a football player named uh, D.J. Shockley, played at the University of Georgia. He was the the second-rated quarterback in the whole country. Imagine that, all the high schools, second-rated quarterback in the whole country. He went to Georgia, and he found himself as uh, a second team (laughs) behind a guy named David Green. So people said, including his father, who was a coach, you need to transfer, you need to transfer, you need to transfer, you need to transfer. You, you, you can play. You can't be sitting here. You, you're, you're great. You need, you know, all that pressure, right? Kids out, enter the transfer portal all the time now. This is why he said, no, I'm, I'm staying at Georgia. He didn't play much the first three years. This is what he said. The number one reason I'm staying is because of my twin brothers. They both have fragile X syndrome, a genetic disorder that causes learning disabilities, but they're bulldogs through and through, and they just wouldn't understand it would break their hearts if I told them I was going somewhere else. He sacrificed his football career for his handicapped brothers. Would you do that? Now let's talk about love and eternity just for the the five minutes that we have left. The wonder of God's love will captivate us throughout all time. I'm sure of that. And we fail to grasp his love now. And and so the prospect of thinking, I'm going to go to heaven and have to learn about God's love forever, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. I don't think I'm going to like eternity. Let Let me tell you something about yourself and about me, okay? Let me just remind you of something. I would think your greatest terror in life, I think it's true of me, is to be rejected, unwanted, unloved, abandoned, or disowned. Can you think of anything more horrible than for people to say, I don't want you, I don't need you, I don't love you, get away from me? This is, this is one of our great terrors, if not the greatest of being abandoned and forsaken. And people do anything to not let this happen. In fact, a lot of our our, our sort of subconscious behavior patterns are to guarantee that people will like us. You know, we're humorous, we have a pleasing personality, or we do things for people. You know, we we just, we don't want to be rejected. And can't you imagine God saying throughout eternity, my love for you is so effusive and poured out. And as Zephaniah 3.17 says, I'm singing over you in love. You're you're never going to get tired of that. To know how much God loves you. A couple of verses that speak to this, I think, very clearly. Ephesians 3, verse 17 through 19, where Paul is saying to the Ephesians that, I want Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love, there's that love theme again, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth. What's he talking about? To know the love of Christ. Endless dimensions to this love, you see. 
And then he says, to know the love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, I'm asking you to know something you can't even know. This is what eternity is going to be, this recognition that he loves you with an infinite love and that will satiate and satisfy your heart forever and ever. And this is the purpose of eternity. The Ephesians 2 passage next, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, says, and we were dead in our sins, trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved, raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. So that in the ages to come, that's the future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's going to continue to pour out this sense that this is who I am for you, and you will never be tired of that. And the first thing he will do in Revelation 21.4, is wipe away your tears. Go to, you can go to the next, the next passage. He'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. Have you cried in your life? Or felt like crying? Maybe you're bottled up, you know, like some of us. Everything that's ever been wrong, everything that's hurt, everything that's painful, everything that's confusing, God's going to say, now, now. It's all right now. You believe that? I love what David said in Psalm 56, 8. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. (laughs) You ever toss and turn at night in your bed worrying about things? You've kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Got his little bottle of your tears and says, I've collected all of these. And I'm going to wipe them away. Uh, one of my friends uh, here in the church asked me the other day if our wounds and scars are going to be healed when we get glorified bodies. And I said, oh, I think everything you, what's wrong with you, you know, all the cellulite and all the, you know, varicose veins and all the, you know, all the ugly, you know, features of your, they're all going to go away. But I don't think the scars of the Savior will go away. My evidence for that is when he rose from the dead, what did he do? his glorified body said look look at my hands and look at my side and for eternity you're going to be able to see the evidence of amazing love love so amazing so divine demands my heart my soul and my all and that's what Christmas is all about let's stand together Lord, you you know the needs we have to love more deeply, more richly, to love more like you. And the only way we're ever going to do that is through the power of the Spirit. I pray that you would deepen us so that we're not asking questions about what things cost us, but how much people might be blessed uh, through uh, whatever uh, we're called to do. Uh, Supernaturally change us from the inside. Show, show us here that this, this life we're talking about is not just a, a bunch of uh, religious efforts and morality. It is, a, it is an abandonment to a sweet Savior who must empower us and give us everything we need. Thank you for your love and creation. 
Thank you for your love in the incarnation. Thank you for your love in the current ministry of the Holy Spirit. And thank you for the promises of your love in the future, in the coming ages. Uh, it will be immeasurable and it's something we will never tire of. We give you all the glory for this day. And if there's a person here who doesn't know you, may they see the reality of Jesus Christ through the incarnation. This is what this season is all about. It's about you coming to earth and rescuing us from ourselves. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.